Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavour of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So I'm delighted today to welcome Professor Malcolm Hollis to the podcast. Hello, Malcolm. Hello. I'm a bit starstruck to have you on here. I told... (laughs) I told a couple of my girlfriends, Kate and Mandy, who are surveyors, that I was interviewing you today. And it was like some kind of, you know, (laughs) some some fan club. They were like, oh, it's Malcolm. And they'll be really embarrassed that I'm saying this on uh, on the podcast. But I'm embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the kind of reputation that you've got in the industry. You know, you've written the books that we all you know, learned from and have been inspired by, you know, so so it's a, it's a it's a big thing. But first of all, I want to start off with, how did you get started as a surveyor? <laughs> by accident, by luck. I knew by it. Reason. I knew it, Malcolm. Lots of people I interview on these podcasts say it was by accident. So tell me about that. Well, mine is by marriage. <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> That's I, a different one. I was very fortunate to meet my wife, we lived in the north of England in Formby for two years, but she came from London. So she said, well, I've done two years in the north. Now how about going back south? So that we went back to London where she worked in an estate agent and oh, a surveyor. And because I was coming into London, that was the opportunity of joining in. And so I did. And I began to learn my way through looking at buildings, inspecting buildings, from Morris Pinto, who was somebody who had done this for years. He was then in his late 60s. He knew the buildings in the area, and he was doing surveys of those buildings. And this is Chester Row, this is all Belgravia, Stone Square, places like that. And the buildings had a very similar form of construction, so that his reports... And this is a strange thing. His reports were two pages. That was his survey report. Well, life's come back full circle, hasn't it? Because actually there are some short surveys out there now. Wow. Well, I think sometimes what you learn is from the short survey is that this is something which gets the nub of the thing over. But as Andrea was saying earlier on, she said, with his reports, you always finished. You got any problems? If you want to talk about this, ring me. And every one of them did. That was where he could expand. But, I mean, this was pre-litigation and all of those Mm. things. But no one ever had any problems. And I guess that's it. You know, things have changed. The litigation and being sued, you know, really changed the landscape of our work. And and in many ways, rightly so, to make us more accountable for the work that we do. So you were sort of quite a late starter there then into surveying. I did architecture and then I came in from there. I see. What would I have been? I got married at 21, 23, 24. Oh, okay. And so you worked in in this sort of, practice how did your career then then develop well I worked there until oh, the end of the 60s and then I got headhunted 
by a development company. Uh, why, what they saw in me, I have no idea. I'm still curious about it. And they, oh, whilst I was in Best Gap, which was this company, I did a degree external in estate management because I became interested in the subject. And that became the way in for RICS and everything else. But then I got headhunted, and that took me, of all places, into Belgium, because I worked on the Common Market Headquarter Extension, and they were doing these developments all over the place. And that got me into much more of the construction side and putting it up, as opposed to looking at the existing buildings and finding where they're falling over. How did you find studying part-time? I did estate management as well, so we've got something in common, Melvin. How did I find it? <laughs> How did you find well, that? Because because actually, I think for a lot of people, it takes it's the only way they can get qualified. Hmm. But I'm I always admire people who work part time and do the study because it shows incredible resilience, you know, and commitment. I think it was probably you've got to remember much simpler times. No television, no mobile phones, no computers, no printers, no Zoom. It was all straightforward. So when you came to coming back after work have a meal, fine, but there was time. Nothing seemed to be quite as pressured as it is nowadays. When if you, you see people walking down the street now and they're nearly always talking on their mobile phone. It's a way of life. Whereas mm. then, the only way you phone people was by picking it up and dialing a number. Mm. So you got to work abroad. What was that like? The one subject I struggled with at school was French. And then I'm in Belgium a few years later, working in French, struggling with the language, but catching up and being able to then report back on the progress, what was happening, what information might be needed and acting as that go between between all of these things. It's quite a different experience, though, to work in a different country and a different culture and the different rules. It makes the challenge that you have to stop and think. You can't just say, I've done that before, and this is the way I'm going to do it in the future. It had to be stopping and thinking, working out, trying to make sure you covered all the bases. And then sometimes, what were the bases you had to think about that you had to cover? And so have you, uh, you've done a variety of uh, different kind of work and uh, you know, do you, in the later years, did you special in residential? Have you always sort of had that broad brush in terms of property? Uh, no. I mean, after a period of time, when Trefoil decided that was the development company, that they had uh, earned enough money and they were going to close down, in those days, to close down, you had to live abroad for a few years. So that for tax reasons, um, <laughs> and that's when I took over the business as the surveying side and set up my own. So that, um, again, one of these things that you came into semi by accident, but life moves on. And what has motivated you to work for yourself, to take over that? that bit? I mean, what size business was it at, the, at that time? I think we had seven or eight people then. I mean, now it's all over the world. It's just, mm. uh, they got 50-something offices around the UK and United Kingdom. What motivated me? It was more by accident somehow. You had the work, the work was coming in, it needed to be done. And because the two uh, directors had left, 
and gone to live abroad. It was there, and I carried on with it. And because I didn't know any better, I took an office in Burkravia, just next to Buckingham Palace. As you and do, it, Malcolm. <laughs> it expanded and ran from it. And um, have you always thought of yourself as a businessman then, or a surveyor? No, surveyor. I mean, the business was something you coped with. You tried to make sure the cash came in. The work was never a problem. I've been very fortunate that in all of my career, it has been a case where the work has flowed in. and. It got wider from just doing inspections of buildings to investigating. And that was the part that I, I liked. You said, why did I get into surveying? I think it was just that here was an opportunity to be nosy. It was an opportunity to go into people's property and poke around and they didn't stop you. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That'll be resonating with many a surveyor. Absolutely. Do you remember the first property you surveyed? No, I can remember the early ones I inspected. But again, because I was acting as the bag man for Morris Pinto in those days, and he was showing me how to do it, it was a long time before I was let loose. But what I was allowed to do was go and check buildings over. There were a lot of buildings which were being vacated at the end of a tenancy, end of a lease. And I did do a lot of inspections to see if those had been emptied. And it was just amazing what was left behind. There is the card of Sir Arthur Wellesley, and that's Duke of Wellington, his army and navy card. These were also occasions where the houses still had their speaking tubes, so that you, from the basement servants' quarters to the upper bits, there was a tube, and if you wanted the servants to do anything, you blew on it, and out came a little nozzle, and that was the way of knowing that somebody was trying to get you. And it was back in a different period. But what was left behind were medals, were sculptures, were all sorts of paintings, and they Malcolm, were being Malcolm, did you walk around? Did you walk around with a swag bag, <laughs> sweeping up all of the, the bits and pieces that you found? Yes, I mean, yeah, I am eclectic in things I collect. You know, I got bits of the Berlin Wall when I was over there. And all of these things I find fascinating. Well, and it's only just hanging around. Nobody wants it anymore. Well, no, they didn't because we you contacted know. the families and said, look, these are the things left behind. What do you want to do with it? And they're usually saying, dump it. Hey, you should get all of these bits and go on um, uh, like bargain hunt or <laughs> flog it or I something like that. I don't <laughs> think any of them got great value. <laughs> I mean, there's a painting over there, which I do rather like, which is one of the ones that did come. But it was a case of looking, it was a case of trying to find out who it was who wanted these things and then being left to sort it out. And a lot of them did go sadly into the bin, but I picked up the things that interested me. Well, you know, I uh, some of the listeners will know because I've told this story before, <clears throat> but when I was, uh, I was quite heavily pregnant with my son 10, 11, year, 11 years ago now, I actually climbed into a skip to rescue a load of um, books that had been, not yours, thankfully, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> some books, some RICS journals from over 100 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. that would have been cleared out of an office. And uh, uh, yes, they, they take pride of place on my uh, on my bookshelf. I think but, it's you know, a shame that there yeah, are it is, isn't it? opportunities to keep the old books because there were so many things in them. And I, I over there, I've got on the shelves, 
old books which have got drawings in them of how the construction was. So you're looking at books of 1840s and they're showing how it was built at the time. And when you're looking at an 1840 building, it's very useful to be able to pick this up. Oh, absolutely. Talking of books, tell me, how did you get into writing books? No idea. <laughs> um, I just did. It all seemed so easy in those days. Mm. You took a paper, a pencil and photographs. I've always wanted illustration because it's, you know, our work is very much a visual process. So to have a book which are no photographs in didn't really, I didn't like the idea. So all the ones I've written have been very substantially illustrated and it all filled the pages up without having to write the words. Um, but I think I was vain enough to think that I knew something and I was interested enough to think other people might be interested. And that's how it happened. I mean, it wasn't a, a program, a plan, or a, a sitting down thing. Oh, my career might go up or down if I wrote this. It was very much my life's been full of accidents and luck, and that's one of them. It might be, but also you've taken the opportunity. Yes, you know, you th- these things come up, and it's been brave enough to take to take the opportunity. Did mm. you think your books would ever be as successful as they have been? I've no idea. I don't think I thought. I'm not intelligent enough to do that. <laughs> Do you think there's a secret sauce to uh, how you promote these books? I know Phil Parnham and Chris Rispin, who'll be listening to this, will be thinking, how can we how can we sell more books? <laughs> well, in those days, uh, going back quite a long way now, you did a book tour. And I trotted mm. around the country talking to groups of surveyors in varying areas. And we did the whole country, I think about nine or ten. And I I think it also caught a mood which was the beginning of the, the universities and the beginning of the profession to come out of its shell a bit um, and then extending it and adding other things in, widening it. It's very strange. I did two inspections this year, one of which was fairly close to here, in which the building has got trees outside. And I actually went to my own book to look at it and I was quite impressed. <laughs> I've never done it before. I mean, it was all to do with the distance away from buildings in mm. clay soils and so on. Mm. Um, I have to confess, I, I did have a copy of your book, but I gave it away. Um, now my work has changed and I, I tend to coach and support surveyors more than actually going out doing um, doing inspections. Through the summer, I actually went through all of the books that I've collected over the years and donated them to a number of students in the Surveyor Hub who are oh, gratefully right. receiving them. And now I know how much some of these cost for resale on eBay. I think, <laughs> okay, but you've got to sort of pay it, pay it forward. When you were, I was going to say growing up, but that sounds awful. When you were sort of growing up as a, as a surveyor, you know, in those, those early years, who were the role models? Who, who inspired you? I don't know that. That's a good question. I don't know the answer because I don't know that there was necessarily anybody that I was looking at thinking I want to be that, unless it was a sportsman or a cricketer or something like that, which were the aims that I always had. But no, in terms of surveying, I don't think I had. I mean, I admired people who were, uh, had the well-known businesses of the time, but I wasn't thinking so much of I want to be 
that, bluntly, I was too busy <laughs> mm. to think wide enough in terms of that sort of ambition. But I guess, you know, the thing about role models is it's not a case of there's a role model, I'm going to follow what they're going to do. I find a lot of the um, youngsters today ask for a mentor. I need a mentor. Mm. When actually it doesn't have to be as formal as that. It's just noticing the people around you. It's noticing you know, what stage of career people are at and what they've got involved in, listening to things like this podcast, you know, and learning more about people's careers. I and it's the other thing is it, you know? having somebody that you can talk to. Yeah. I mean, that I would like to be able to do more of now. But not to push what I've done, but more to answer their questions. Because we're very much a profession that should be asking the questions. We don't have questions asked of us, because that way it focuses our mind down that route, where we should be in any building we look at, very directly Mm, asking questions. Yeah, absolutely. So going back to your, your business, so you bought the business. How did it then grow? to the huge business is it now? It grew at the next stage because I merged it with a firm that was well established and they got seven offices and I became a partner in that with it being Malcolm Hollis attached. (laughs) There's my first two professionals. Best Gap, Pain, Leper. Now, what can you think of a better sort of set of (laughs) words to work with us as a firm? But... (laughs) Back to Pain Lab, a big uh, company in its time. Uh, and they then were bought by Nationwide Anglia, which put mm. me in charge of all of the surveyors of Nationwide Anglia. And mm. then that ran its course. Nationwide Anglia didn't want to be involved anymore. So I bought back that part of the business and started back again under my own name, which had never quite disappeared in the previous arrangement. Mm. And that's how it got up a bit then life takes over and you open here because that's where the work is there because that's where the work is and it grows organically how did you always come back to being a surveyor though because you can get really really carried away with managing people managing business the pressure of growing a business how did you split your time or did you just delegate that out to others so that you could be the true surveyor well, I became involved with the university and all of this lot. So that mm. I was doing that, teaching there, as well as doing the job, as well as running a business, which did get a bit too much at one stage. Um, and I, I think a lot of surveyors get to that point where they're, they're doing too much and it affects your work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I had a balance. <laughs> so what would you have done differently now? Oh, I don't know. That's, again, one of those questions that you ask, but I'm not sure that I can answer because I've been so lucky, so fortunate in so many ways that if I tried to do it again, I couldn't say that I'd have that same luck, same fortune. Mm. I mean, from a kid from Lancashire to actually come and work in Belgium, to find that you're working with lords and ladies in Belgravia, that you... It just is something I can't believe happened, but it did. And I guess it just goes to show what's possible. (laughs) Yes. uh, You've got to be able to do the work, communicate. You've got to be able to provide what people want. 
and make sure that you actually get uh, get paid for it as well. Well, absolutely. And that's something I hear a lot of with surveyors is charging what you're worth, mm. you know, doing work that you love for people that pay you what you deserve, you know, so that you can do the, do the things that you love, you know, ultimately. So with your, your book, is there a new, a new edition? Are you working on a new I'm working new on book? the dilapidation book at the moment, which I hope to finish <laughs> this year. I'm going to redo uh, the pocket book of surveying building and then do uh, a new edition of surveying building. One of the problems I've got is the original publisher went out of business. And that, ah. of course, was surveyors publications. And that means I have lost some of the page proofs, or all of the page proofs, which I was going to work on and amending. So it's almost the case of having to go back to the beginning, which is more than frustrating which is why I want to do the pocketbook first, because that I think I can deal with and then do the surveying buildings following that. But what I what I would like to do is to get some more reprints doing of the original copy, fifth edition. Yeah, we're always asked in the hub, you know, has anybody got a copy of this book? (laughs) (laughs) I've got uh, the uh, PDFs of it. Um, And I was thinking at one stage of making those available which these days so many people are used to reading online. I still like... I like a good book, yeah. I like to be able to (laughs) make notes in the margins and think, who's the prat who did that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, my my friend Kate will be very pleased that the pocket survey book is uh, is being um, uh, updated because that's her favourite, she says. So you 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 grew your you grew your business. You got into you know sort of writing the books. Great successful career. Tell me about how you got into TV because that's how many surveyors will know you. Not just from the books that you've that you've got and we've all we've all learned from. But how did you get into TV? I don't know. <laughs> that, it you, that's the answer to all of your questions, Malcolm. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what happened was I think that there was something which had happened in the news which was building orientated. And I was asked if I would do it. And I was, you know, there aren't many working academics. and Maybe they thought that I should know what I was talking about, which is a great mistake. Then companies doing things like Hot Property, which was a series, picked me up from there. And then about five or six, one after the other. And they were interesting. They were fun. They were ways of getting over the results of using your eyes, using your knowledge of buildings. And my wife always tells me that one Christmas I should have been here with the family and I wasn't. I was in a cupboard with Esther Ranson, <laughs> ready to jump out in a builder who was doing a, a I think the word is crap job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the mind boggles when we think of that. And, and for those youngsters out there who won't even know who Esther Ranson was and the um that's Dame Esther and yeah amazing program and I I guess really what was interesting about the work that you did was actually bringing surveying into the public yeah domain you know uh, and even now you know we've got a generational problem of of people that sort of you know buy houses staying them you know then die and then you you know you've got this sort of cyclical so it's quite hard for for us to keep back um, uh, maintain momentum as to mm. you know what is surveying and, and why is it so important particularly in terms of, of residential for consumers and i don't think we get as a profession 
the recognition that I'd like to have seen. If I could change one thing as I retire, as it were, when I do, uh, it would be to make sure that there is better recognition for the profession. I mean, we think of the public service that we provided. We protected people against the bad builders. We protected them against poor construction. Um, but where are the MBEs, OBEs, knighthoods in our profession? I don't think they happen. And, and I'd like to see that better understanding of just what the profession has provided. Malcolm, there might be a, a, an OBE or the like heading your way. <laughs> if you, I don't. You know, if, if anyone's listening to this podcast, which I'm sure they will, there'll be one, one heading your way. But you're right, you know, in terms of getting recognition, understanding what we do, the difference that we make. But, you know, there's so many different types of surveyor out there, mm. so many different types. And then when you look at it globally, there's, you know, the, I think I think when I was at an RICS meeting, they talked about 178 different types of surveyor. You know, that's huge. How do you then have a face of surveying if there is one? And I guess for you, when you were doing that TV work back in the, what was it, 80s, 90s, mm. you were the face of surveying for, for many. Um, when you got involved in, you know, sort of hiding in the cupboard with, with Esther Ranson <laughs> and, and looking actually at surveyors doing the, the surveys, for listeners and the young listeners who won't know about that, tell me, uh, explain sort of a, a, a bit about that and how that came about. How you came across surveyors who weren't doing the job as well. Well, yeah, yeah, because you were the expert in the cupboard, hmm. weren't you, sort of looking at surveyors who were supposed to be doing a good job and they weren't. I think that probably there's two things. Go back all that way and you're looking at the surveying industry, but it was being badly dealt with by the judiciary. Surveyors who were doing mortgage valuations were being held to be liable for not having done a survey. And that was one of the big things. When I was running the Nationwide Anglia bit, I was involved heavily in the litigation that was going against surveyors who did this. And it took some time to get the distinction clear between a building survey, a house buyer's report, and a mortgage valuation and what you could see from those. And sadly, that was a period when surveyors had a bad time of it. Not always because they were doing the job badly. But I still think that in terms of the work that is probably being done even now, people are very good at seeing the cracks, but not good at saying what that means. How, what's the consequence? Construction, condition, consequence is really the whole basis of doing a survey. And the consequence is still something which people don't punch home as well. And maybe in a two-page report, you can get that over. When you did those programmes, how did the surveying industry react? Um, I think that there was a lack of comfort. Um, who was I to do this? Who hmm. so on. But I was on a lot of RSS committees. I was trying to, at that time, be involved in making the changes. And I was instrumental in some of those. But I don't think it was necessarily thought of as a thing that surveyors ought to be doing. We're professionals. We're not television people. Not television people, and you don't blow the whistle on your own and that kind of culture. Mm. But, you know, I guess many people were upset because actually you were right that we can't have 
poor quality work mm. because there are real consequences, as you say. And whilst we don't have the programmes now, what most homes have is CCTV. You know, mm. in my in my claims work over the years, I've come across a number of cases where homeowners have CCTV in their home and have filmed a surveyor walking around and have asked questions about what they're doing. The surveyor didn't know there was a, a camera on and it gets very sort of difficult. And I know many surveyors go into a property now and there's always that heightened, what if I'm being watched? And that can make you quite fearful but you know if you're if it you've shouldn't. got a good route it shouldn't exactly if no you, i mean you should be working on the basis i'm always being watched yeah and, I mean, and if you've got a good routine and a good job that you that yeah. you're doing it well it shouldn't matter that you're being watched i still do the inspections paper and pencil so that i will do a, a sketch a drawing of what it is that i'm looking at so that i can actually make a note of what i've seen and if i come to something else which is an extension of it I can go back and make another note. Whereas I find if you dictate it or any of those things, it's a stream that you can't necessarily go back into. And I find that more difficult to work with. But it's never bothered me if somebody wants to follow me around. You know, it's always nice to have somebody else to carry the ladder. (laughs) I imagine there'd be quite a few students out there who would love to to follow you around. (laughs) <laughs> a, a property but it's it's encouraging that you're still out there still doing doing mm. a few jobs keeping you yeah. active yeah well you can't sit back and do nothing mm. and because i've spent so much time writing it's nice to get outside occasionally mm. you mentioned uh you, you know a couple of times you talked about the consequence of what you what we do what are your thoughts on um you know the hackett report fire safety and, and grenfell and building regulations because that's a real it's not a yeah. game changer, but it's a real focus now in our work, isn't it? Well, I've dealt with earlier on fires in buildings to a large extent, trying to find out what the cause was. And so many times it was errors in construction and the choice of construction materials. I mean, one I was thinking about just then was one which was caused by recessed light in the ceiling downright as they call and you have to make sure over the top you've got protection to mm. stop the fire being able to with the heat build up and these are ones where they were just putting the insulation back over the top and they were a, a fire the, the Grenfell disaster is appalling you read the daily reports coming in which I do of what was said in the hearing the day before and you think all of those things, one after the other, the material being changed, the fact that they didn't know that there was a fire risk, the fact that the people who did it weren't experienced, hadn't done it before, the fact that people weren't checking, all of those things go through a process of construction. But we as surveyors, as charter surveyors, I think would have done a better job than some of the people who were involved in that. And maybe that way we would have been able to save lives. There was um, a clip I saw, I'll put it in the show notes, a clip I saw the other day of somebody who I think used to work in the building control department, I think it was, of the uh, of the council, who had said that within the department they had 10 surveyors and they were made redundant or reduced and replaced with one graduate. Yeah. You know, you... I mean, that's quite common now, sadly, mm. and it's common because the pressures are in finance, 
and all of these things are bringing it down to what people are able to pay for, and local authorities have been privately put under too much pressure. But it's again forgetting the service which is run, the protection which is provided, the profession provides it, and if you actually say you've got 150 jobs when you nearly can only do 30 at a time, then you're bound to expect some problems. And it's Mm -hmm. sad that those who run these local authorities don't accept that. I guess you forget or they forget the purpose, you know, which is to make sure that people can live in their homes. It's they're safe, dry, warm, missing the sort of whole point. And we we focus on process Mm. budgets all the time. You mentioned, you know, that, that you're out sort of doing a few sort of few jobs. Have you been much of a DIYer at home? <laughs> yes, the shelves behind me. Uh, I'm, yeah, so we're recording this on Zoom and I'm looking at the back and you look, you've got a really nice little snug there, a little <laughs> den. Yes, it's my study. My wife's study is on the other side of the house. That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, same floor. But uh, yeah, I, I like working in construction. I like being able to do things. And yes, some of the things that I've done here are not as good as they should have been, but they've got round problems. I mean, this house is 150 years old. It's got plenty of blemishes in it. Have you caused some of those blemishes, Malcolm? Yes, because we did some alterations in the building. It's a Victorian building, single brick thick walls. You've got all of those walls supported because the floors link them. And that floor, the partitions on the inside, which are virtually like uh, trusses and beams, hold the thing together. So when you punch a new doorway through from one room to another, because you think it's a good idea, yes, you weaken things, and that makes things bend, and then you find cracks appearing where you wouldn't want them. But you can get round that to the next stage of strengthening and sorting it. One of we the learn things, more about construction and how we... Well, I was about about to say, you know, um, Phil Parn at the moment is doing a, an extension and we're getting a running commentary of what that looks like <laughs> and what he's learning from it. And for those who, who struggle to find mentors and experience, just look at your own home. There's all mm. sorts of things that you can find there. One of the things that comes up quite often in the hub, and, um, and I know you're in the, the Facebook group and, and your contributions are, are very welcome. Uh, one of the things that we find quite regularly is something that somebody's repaired with duct tape or no nails. Have you ever repaired anything with duct tape, Malcolm? No, I've repaired things with, (laughs) I have put things on with no nails, but that's usually a a beading or something like that. So you haven't, you haven't bodged any jobs then? I would hope, certainly when it comes to electrics, I'm very, very careful. Because again, I've dealt with so many fires. Mm. The first fire that ever came or was involved with, was somebody who had got an electric hairdryer and they'd left that plugged into the mains. Not switched on, but it wasn't good enough. And that then burst into flames and set off the problems in the building. Since then, my great panic is to make sure the hairdryer, uh, which occasionally I use, um, is switched off all the time when it's not in use. And I guess if you've seen, it sounds like you've done lots of investigation into... Yeah. problems like that and I guess if you you once you see those things you can't unsee it you know yeah. and does that make you sort of very then sort of aware and risk averse I think you're very you'd like to think you're risk averse but 
I mean, one of the things that I do remember is a building I went into where four people had been killed by its collapse. And that I found very difficult to do the inspection on. Because every time I looked at something, there was a smashed up coffee pot. There was a smashed up paper Mm -hmm. cup. And I found that difficult. But because I've always believed it's eyes first for any inspection, the way I slowed down was to actually do a drawing of what I could see. And if you draw, you have to be able to slow down sufficiently. Wow, that's a brilliant drawing, Malcolm. (laughs) Well, what it was in slowing it down, you start noticing things which you hadn't seen just by looking. And you began to see that this was a building which had been single story, and then they added two floors on. And the way those floors have been added on, sadly, was appalling. I mean, the original parapet, which was just a block wall, they put piers on. So that when they came to do alterations to it, it just didn't have the guts to be able to hold up with those changes being made. Making a hole in a wall here for a door is one thing. Making it a building like that brought the whole lot down. And with it, took four people's lives. And that stays with you even all those years. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the notes that I made then and the drawings that I put together, as I started looking more carefully, are, are ones that began to expose the reason for it in the report then to actually mm. put this together as a unit. And uh, I think if you go onto the internet, you can actually find the report. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we we joke about, you know, the use of duct tape to repair things and how uh, how creative um, creatively it's used. But actually, homeowners and people who are, they're just trying to look after themselves. They're just trying to repair something. They just want to be able to live in their homes. Not everybody has got the money to fix no. things in their home. And whilst it's very easy for us as surveyors to be quite judgmental over how things are repaired or how things are, are built... Yes, we've got regulations and, you know, that, that should be followed. But when you're a, a homeowner and you don't have the budget, yeah. no, no nails and duct tape is, is quite handy, quite revolutionary. But what we've got to look at as surveyors is the consequence of that duct tape. And that might mm. be if it's around a pipe joint that the water's come slightly dripping through. And, and I and I guess, Malcolm, it's also then for us as surveyors not just to be there for the survey when you buy the property, but to be a surveyor, a family surveyor, if you Mm. like, and to have that longer relationship so that people come to you to ask for professional advice when they want extension repairs. And and that's where I see, you know, uh, these days with many surveyors in the residential and valuation sector, quite silo. You know, I just do surveys, that's it. Mm. When they don't look at actually the full relationship that we could and should be having with uh, with, with customers and the benefit that that would then give them. I think that it's a back to that communication thing and we have to be good communicators. We have to be able to get over the issues which are important and those which are quite so vital to be resolved. Malcolm, it's been really good to talk to you today. It's been great fun. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Um, one, one last sort of question. What do you wish for the surveying, future of surveying? And what would you tell surveyors of the future? What would you like them to know? I think the recognition thing, which we mentioned earlier on, I'd like to see in terms of the profession, a better recognition of what is being done 
and the benefits. In terms of surveying, I'd like, I'd like to see a way of getting people to develop what they see into what it could be, the risks and so on, and recognising also that we can't be perfect. And quite a lot of the time, what we're doing is as good as we can get, but don't say to people, I can't be certain. There's no reason why we shouldn't say to people, you know, from what I've been able to see, from the level of inspection. I can't tell you that that definitely is it. I think it is from my experience, fine. But we're not prepared to step back and say, that's the limit. And that sometimes gets people upset. I think the other thing is, I'd like to see people who read the reports. Because you, in the last few days, I've read a, a few judgments where the judge on evaluation, 15, 20 pages, have said, well, people don't read the valuation report. They just look for the figure at the bottom. Mm. And all of that work which qualifies, which focuses and directs somebody to the risks which are attached, they regard as being things that would just be ignored. And that's interesting because if we know that consumers and customers are not reading reports then we've got to adapt our reports. It's that old, um, is it Herod's clause, you know, um, of, and you see it nowadays, you know, if you go into a coffee shop and you, yes, you tick to say, I've read the terms and I'll for, for free Wi-Fi. And they did, an ex, they did an experiment where, yes, you can get free Wi-Fi, but the first thing it said in the terms would, you would give your firstborn son to the coffee shop owner. <laughs> you know? And six or seven people did it for free Wi-Fi, they hadn't read the the terms, no. you know, but if we know that they don't do that and our culture has, has changed, you know, we, I think there'll come a point where we don't, we can't just, you know, go back to, well, read, read the terms, read the terms, because we know the whole country largely isn't reading them and therefore we've got to find different ways of... of, of it's almost going back across. to where we started off or where I did, which is where the standard survey report was two pages, and people read that because mm. it was two pages, whereas now we produce 30-page reports. But if I stick lots of photographs in, people actually notice it. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Malcolm, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.